You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I am here. Aaron is here. This show is presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them that we told you to call. Tom will call in uh, a little bit later on. Uh, I've got a lot of things to get to before uh, Tommy joins us. Uh, We're not going to do Super Bowl trivia today. Um, Aaron and I were sitting here and we just decided we're not ready to do it really. And we've had some issues with the phone lines um, when we have multiple calls on the phones. So we'll try to do it tomorrow. So for those of you that really wanted me to do it, I apologize, but we'll try to do it. We'll try to do it tomorrow, but I'm not going to promise that we'll do it tomorrow. Um, but, uh, anyway, I also wanted to mention that Cooley will be on the show, uh, tomorrow. So we'll have Cooley on from Atlanta, uh, where he is down there and, uh, he'll come on the show, help preview the Super Bowl. We'll talk about the recent coaching, uh, changes within the, uh, Redskins organization and maybe even a little bit more about him. So, uh, tune in for that, uh, tomorrow real quickly, um, out of the gate here. I thought the Wizards played. One of their best games of the season last night. I thought they were really impressive. And I, I know Indiana is struggling, you know, without Victor Oladipo. I think they've lost three or four in a row. They're in big trouble. But I thought it was one of the cleanest games I've watched the Wizards play. Certainly the cleanest first half that they've played. I mean, they were really good in that first half last night. They passed it well. They shot it well. They defended well. Um, they only had, I think, four turnovers in the first half. They got a little sloppy at times in the second half. Uh, they had a big lead in the game. Um, Indiana really never you know, threatened. I think they got it to 10 late in the third quarter, but that was it. Um, but it was really impressive. You know, it was un- it was impressive also on national television. If you didn't know that, the Wizards Pacers game last night was yeah. the ESPN main crew game too, um, with uh, with Breen and company uh, at Capital One Arena last night. It was on locally as well. It was Jimmy P was doing the uh, pregame stuff with Chris Miller. That's always a great uh, watch. And and Buck and Kara were on the call. Uh, as well. Uh, Jeff Green, you know, and I mentioned this two weeks ago, I think I said, I want Jeff Green to be more consistent. I want him to pick it up. They need him because he went through, you know, a brief rough patch, a couple of games, didn't play well. He was great last night and he came off the bench. Otto Porter started last night. Um, He was back in the starting lineup, more on him in a moment, but uh, Jeff Green, 23 points, five rebounds, six assists, two block shots. He was outstanding last night. They all were really now, on Otto Porter, he hurt his toe last night. You know, who knows how long he'll be out with the hurt toe? We know this about Otto Porter. He's not a guy that handles pain very well. You know, he's not what any of us would call a tough guy. You know, we've seen enough of Otto's career now to say very comfortably he's a nice player. He can do a lot of good things. He's versatile, but he's not a killer. You know, he's not the toughest of competitors. He's not a super passionate, energetic, win-at-all-costs guy. You know, he's not a max player, obviously. Not that this is a a revelation. I would try to move him next week. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I don't think he's useless. I've never said that about him. I think he's more helpful than not helpful. Um, And he is a good third, fourth guy, you know, if you've got two superstars or two superstars and a really good third player. You know, he's more of a fourth guy, let's be fair here. I mean, he's not really a third spoke, you know, on, on, a, on a really, you know, fast wheel. He's not. 
Um, he, my preference, I'd move him for one reason and one reason only. My preference for big money is stone cold, die at all costs competitors. And that's not auto. It's never going to be. Those things are more innate than learned. Uh, one interesting note on the game last night, Aaron, I don't know if you saw this. The Wizards are now seven and two in the second game of a back-to-back, but one and eight on the first one going in. That doesn't make any sense. No, it makes absolutely no sense and probably just completely random. Yeah, they've got another three back-to-backs this year. Uh, They get Milwaukee Saturday night at Capital One. The Greek Freak missed that game a few weeks ago when they were in town, and the Wizards won it. He'll uh, play uh, Saturday night. Um, All right, Rob Ryan got hired by the Redskins to be their linebackers coach. He hasn't coached since 2016 when he was in Buffalo as the assistant head coach defense. Um, that's pretty much the lead defensive position there. I think uh, I think Dennis Thurman may have been his defensive coordinator in Buffalo. But anyway, he was in New Orleans um, four years before that working for Sean Payton. You remember why he got fired from New Orleans, right? Yeah. The Redskins put 47 on him. It was the Kirk Cousins RF, uh, RFK. Kirk Cousins FedEx Field 47-14 game where they just annihilated them. That was in 2015. Yeah. Um, his... Of course I lead with Kirk Cousins on that. He had a phenomenal day. I mean, Look up Kirk Cousins' stats from that New Orleans game because it wasn't just stats. He won the game. But then again, I mean, that, that, that'll that completely ruin the narrative that he beat anybody like Drew Brees in, a, in an actual game. That that It probably didn't happen. Um, Back to Rob Ryan, in all seriousness here. I don't care about his stats from that game. I know they were great. Um, his last two defenses were god-awful in New Orleans, uh, 31st both years in 2014, 2015. He's been a defensive coordinator, you know, if you count the Buffalo year, 13 times. Just three times has he had a defense ranked in the top half of the league. <laughs> All right, so 10 out of 13 years, bottom half of the league, and three 31st out of 32 team uh, finishes. The last time he was a linebackers coach, New England, early 2000s with Belichick. All right, so I, I didn't know this, and I didn't remember this actually um, until uh, I read it yesterday. But after that one season in Buffalo, he interviewed for the Redskins' vacant defensive coordinator uh, job to uh, to replace Joe Barry, but the position went to Greg Minuski instead. Um, the Redskins interviewed several people this year, as we know. You know, Todd Bowles uh, among them. Um, they did not talk to Steve Wilkes. We know that they wanted to interview Greg Williams, but they kept Minuski. Kirk Olivadotti, who was their linebackers coach, left for a similar position in Green Bay. And Ryan was out there and available, hadn't been employed since 2016. And the Redskins play a 3-4 defense, and Rob Ryan's coached a 3-4 defense before, so let's have him in as the linebackers coach. It, this is really simple, all right? He was hired more than anything else because he was available. And it was probably getting down to too difficult to find somebody else that would take it that was at least qualified for the job. The best thing about his resume is that he worked for Belichick and worked for Sean Payton. Both of them seem to be fine with Rob Ryan. That's it. You know, he's never been great at what he's done. He hasn't coached linebackers since the 2000s. Doesn't mean he can't. He's got a ton of energy. He'll be a great soundbite, a great quote. I will try to get him on this podcast at some point. 
although the Redskins really aren't helping out with that stuff these days. But that's okay. We don't need uh, we don't need them. Um, but I'll try to get them. Uh, look, in Ryan, they may have Minuski's replacement on the staff if the defense falters. I wouldn't bet on it. But nobody should be overly excited about the hiring of Rob Ryan. The Redskins are in the midst of one of the real difficult off seasons uh, in franchise history. You know, with respect to the injury to Alex Smith and the cap hit that they, you know, the cap issue that will come out of that. The coaching staff, everybody wanting to leave, or for the most part, a lot of people wanting to leave. Nobody wanting jobs here unless they had no other options. Um, it's not a real um, feel-good situation. There's not a whole hell of a lot to be glass half full, you know, optimistic about entering 2019. But it is the NFL, and anything can happen. And hell, between now and next season, they may pull off a big trade, move up, and select Dwayne Haskins or someone else at quarterback. And that's where I wanted to go next because John Kime wrote a column the other day that. I was going to get to yesterday, and we just never did because Jimmy Patsos was so great. Um, he's one of my favorite people, and if you missed that interview with Jimmy, it was long, but it won't seem long because he's so interesting, he's so smart, so positive, um, knows so many people, has so many stories, and we ended up talking, Aaron, yesterday for over an hour, I believe. And I'll do it again soon. I don't care what anybody else thinks because he was great and I enjoyed it a lot. And I think a lot of you did and you, a lot of you told me uh, as much as well. Um, all right. Um, Kime wrote a story the other day that the Robert Griffin III trade uh, provides lessons for the Redskins that they must heed entering this 2019 offseason, specifically the 2019 draft. And John wrote that, you know, the Redskins aggressively moved up in 2012 to take Robert Griffin III, um, but it's a, uh, it's a scenario that they should not repeat this spring. Um, John writes, one of the issues is, like in 2012, they're gonna ha- they have a cap space issue. Now, remember in 2012, and John points this out, he knows this, that the salary cap uh, penalty was imposed after the trade. Uh, for Robert Griffin III. Mike Shanahan said, and, and, and John had this specific quote in his story on ESPN.com, Mike Shanahan said, no way we would make that trade if we knew we were getting the cap hit. Um, that you couldn't upgrade your team after, uh, you know, after the following year um, and with the, with the salary cap penalty. So the Redskins sent the two first-rounders, the second-round pick to the Rams, moved up to number two overall, ended up taking... Robert Griffin III, and and John thinks that this is not something that should be repeated and they should learn from that lesson. I don't agree entirely. I don't agree entirely with the overall idea that teams shouldn't move up in a draft for a quarterback. I'm fine with it, actually. In general, I'm fine with it. Now, I'm not fine with it when it comes to this organization. And I'll get to that in a moment. I was actually fine with it in 2012. I was a supporter of the trade. I knew it was expensive. I knew they were trading away their future, their immediate future. I had no idea about the salary cap penalty. And if I did, I would have never advocated or supported the trade as someone, as a fan of the team. And I was doing sports talk radio at the time. But I was in favor of the trade. I remember specifically what a controversial topic was. it was. I remember... At the station, there was one person dead set against it, and he, he he turned out to be right. Zabe was dead set against it. 
thought it was absolutely ludicrous to, to trade that much away for you know a quarterback where it's such a crapshoot to begin with. I was in favor of it. I was wrong. I, I was wrong because they did it for the wrong guy. Um, and as everyone, you know, that everybody knows that now for the most part. Um, and it was the organization too, and the salary cap penalty that was coming that you didn't know at the time. But I, I still am a believer that if you are convinced that you have identified the guy, the guy at that position, you do it. Andy Reid did it in 2017 for Patrick Mahomes. You think the Chiefs made a mistake there? You know, the the Bills did it last year to, to select Josh Allen. Eagles traded up for Wentz. Eagles traded up for Wentz. And Rams traded up for Goff. And Rams traded up for Goff. But, you know, the, the Mahomes thing came out of, out of nowhere. No one yeah. was expecting them to do that. The Bills did it for a quarterback that not everybody was thrilled with, but I thought Josh Allen at times looked like the real deal last year. Didn't Arizona? They did it last year also for Josh Rosen. They traded up. I think so, yeah. Wasn't too far up, but yeah, they traded up. I think if you have the right guy, you do it. It's worth it if you have the right guy. Now, everybody misses on the guy that they're convinced is the right guy, and that position, you know, there's a lot of misses on. You know, the miss rate, though, on first-rounders and second-rounders doesn't just apply to a quarterback position. You can miss with the following year's first-round pick that you traded away. You could miss on that next year on a left tackle, on a corner, on a wide receiver. I don't, as a general, you know, uh, position on this, I don't have a problem at that position if you think you've got the guy to go up and get him. Now, as it relates to the Redskins... I don't like the idea. I think volume of picks in an organization like Washington is better strategy than less picks for a potential game changer at quarterback. And the reason for that thinking is this. Who do you really trust right now in this organization to get it right? To get the player right? To get the trade compensation right? Who do you trust to really get that right? The answer is nobody. You know, if they take 9 to 10 players in the upcoming drafts, staying put at 15, or even trading back and picking up players, they'll stumble into, you know, a few hits. You know, volume drafting for an organization like Washington is probably the best strategy because you'll stumble into three or four players. You know, if they draft in the first round at their normal spot over the next three years, they'll hit on one to two. You know, they'll hit on one of them. Volume drafting for organizations like Washington who are ill-equipped to identify, evaluate, identify, and then come up with the right trade to go get a player, volume drafting is really the best way to go. That's where we are with this group right now. You know, as fans, if they traded up to 10, gave up, or traded up to 5, gave up a first to do it, or gave up a... This year's second, next year's second, and a fourth to do it. I don't have the compensation chart in front of me. It's, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly close. I might not yeah, be. Yeah, moving up 10 spots would be about that. Yeah, so um, as fans, could you really trust a trade-up for Daniel Jones or Drew Locke? You know, if the quarterbacks all get bunched up and it's obvious they're going to go early, I, I don't think any of us would trust them on this. You know, the other part of that, too, you have to keep in mind is that if it happens, it's probably happening in part because Dan and Bruce 
have fallen in love with in love with somebody. They they have they have decided after meeting with somebody at Indy, oh my God, this is our guy. He's a star. You know, I mean, to hell with his footwork or to hell with his release or his anticipation throwing, you know, or his, you know, feel in the pocket. That they don't understand that stuff. But this guy's a star. This guy's our guy. We got to go get him. You know, once Dan falls in love with somebody, then you've got the whole Griffin situation in play. The empowering, you know, of of a young person um, getting in the middle of of that person getting coached. You know, preferential uh, preferential treatment, star treatment by the owner. I don't trust this organization to do it. You know, I don't. It doesn't mean that if they did it that they would definitely fail. You could stumble into Daniel Jones or Drew Locke trading up for either one of them and getting it right. Dwayne Haskins getting it right. There isn't what you would call a, you know, a, a great quarterback, a a can't miss quarterback in this draft in terms of the evaluation of quarterbacks from all of the, you know, from all of the draft people. You know, there's no Andrew Luck in this draft. There's no look. The Luck Griffin thing in 2012 was, hey, doesn't matter if you have the second pick, you're gonna get a great quarterback. You know, the Griffin thing could have worked out better. I don't know that it would have ever worked out the way we all hoped it was going to work out, even though it looked that way in 2012 during the season. The injury obviously wasn't good. Um, and there was warning about the injury before. He had had, you know, an ACL injury at Baylor. But if the owner had stayed the F out and given his coach full authority to coach the player instead of getting in the middle of that relationship by empowering Griffin too much, it would have worked out much better. It would have worked out so much better for Griffin you know, being coached by Mike and Kyle and Sean and Matt. It would have worked out so much better for Griffin. Look at it now. Look at all the coaches that have left that have gone on and McVay working with quarterbacks and Kyle working with quarterbacks and Matt LaFleur. I mean, Griffin was in a dream position. Dream position. And unfortunately, his immaturity... Um, was vulnerable to an owner that was also immature uh, and was very much into relationships with stars. And he empowered him to the point where the coach couldn't coach him anymore. He empowered him so much that the player thought he was the coach, thought he had more power in the organization than, than the head coach. One of my favorite lines from Mike in one of our first conversations on the air after he uh, had been gone for a year or two, it was 2015, I guess, was that the, uh, is when he said to me, he said that Robert Griffin III, he said, I had to have the ability to bench Robert and to threaten to bench him and have him take it seriously. And it was never going to be taken seriously because all he had to do was pick up the phone or walk into Dan's office and say, do you know what Mike just said to me? Uh, it was really a dysfunctional situation, um, and it started late in 2012 when Griffin got hurt initially against Baltimore, and then Kirk Cousins didn't run the zone read in Cleveland. That was, and it's been documented, we've talked about it many, many times, that was the beginning of the end for a lot of things. Uh, but anyway, uh, netting it out, I'm not generally against trading up for a quarterback um, I just don't think it's the thing that this organization should be doing. I think that it's probably wrong 
for this particular organization. Uh, Window Nation, real quickly before we get to Tommy. Um, They like this podcast, Harley, Aaron, Eric. They listen all the time. If you've been thinking about new windows, I promise you as someone who has had Window Nation install windows in my home, you can't go wrong by giving them a call. Home show season is just getting started. So is the home show savings opportunity from Window Nation. You can turn your home into a show place. Window Nation wants to bring the home show savings right to your door with free windows, but you must hurry. You've got to you've got to take advantage of this offer by end of day Sunday. Call them today. Mention home show promo. Get two free windows for every two you buy. Buy four, get four free. There's no limit. Plus, for a limited time only, get 0% financing for 18 months. Call today and get educated on the newest models and latest innovations demonstrated right in the comfort of your own home. And it'll be done absolutely free. You'll get factory incentives plus once-a-year home show discounts from the company that has installed over 450,000 windows in more than 80,000 homes, including mine. So let's get this show on the road. Now through Sunday, two free windows for every two you buy plus 0% financing. Call Window Nation at 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell them that I sent you. All right, let's bring in Tommy who's still on vacation. When is you, Are you coming back tonight or this weekend or when? Well, you know, I'm, supposed, I'm scheduled to come back tonight. But I don't know what sane person would get on a plane <laughs> to leave for Florida and head back to Washington tonight. So I'm having second, third, fourth, and fifth thoughts about it. Oh, uh, you should have a, a seventh, eighth, and ninth thought about it too, because I swear to God, last night was one of the coldest nights I can ever remember. I, I know we've been colder. We didn't set a record here locally. I think it was too below at Dulles. I don't even know what the temperature was at Reagan. When I got up early this morning, Tommy, really early, it was three on my car um, on my car uh, temperature reading. But here's the thing that's been awful about the last 24 hours, the wind. It's not just been super cold, it's been windy. It is brutal here, but it's going to get better. I mean, if you if you take an extra day, by the time we get to Saturday and Sunday, it's going to be 50 on Sunday. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I'm, but uh, i got to get back because I've got commitments tomorrow. And, you know, look, at, I, I understand how tough it was for you, but wasn't it tougher for the guy that you paid to go out and start your car for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he really was miserable. He was miserable. Um, it was. Uh, it really has been cold here. I mean, the whole country. I mean, I, I, I'm. I'm sure. I have not even looked to see. Has our president been tweeting about global warming recently? Of course he has. Yeah, what, I've of missed. I've missed. What has he said? Oh, he he says you know wish we had some of that global warming or uh, something along okay. those lines. Um. Anyway, yeah, you missed. You missed the coldest of it. If you get back tonight, I think tonight it's only going to be in the upper single digits to low teens. It's actually going to feel... Yeah, I think it's supposed to be 15 degrees when I land. It'll feel balmy, seriously, compared to what it was late (laughs) last night and early this morning. And then I'm looking at the forecast right now. Sunday, mostly sunny, 52. Monday, sunny and 55. And then we get some rain, but temperatures in the 50s through Wednesday. I have looked at the long range, for those of you that are interested in this. And, you know, it's not going to stay warm. (laughs) Let me just say, it's not going to stay warm. And more likely than not, we still have some pretty good 
chances for snowstorms and certainly beginning in the middle part portion of February, if not like next late next weekend is a possibility too. So, well, if, if, if it can hold out, until February 17th. That's when I'll be back down in Florida again for spring training. Oh, my God. You, you got a good gig. You got a good gig. Um, all right. A couple things have happened since you've, uh, since we talked on Tuesday. Uh, first of all, the Redskins hired Rob Ryan yesterday to be their linebackers coach. Hallelujah, baby. Hey, he's your kind of guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's my brother from another mother. He looks like you. Uh, they, they, um, they must not have been able to find anybody else is all I can imagine. I mean, cause he's been out of work since 2016, you know, he hasn't worked for the last two seasons. They didn't hire him to be their defensive coordinator in 2017 when they hired Minuski. and uh, Tommy, this is just the situation right now. They have more people that want to leave than want to come. You know, so they've got to they've got to find the the Hortons and the, the the Rob Ryan's who really haven't been doing much recently to take jobs. Do we know if he was calling bingo games? We don't know if he was calling bingo games. We don't know if okay. uh, if but if, he was out of football for two years, right? Yeah, yeah, he was out of football for, since yeah. 2016. He didn't coach in 17 or last year at all. So well, this I'm, this I'm may have been a shock to him too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, apparently, really, what he what he's what he's doing is, you know, for years he was in charge of the lunchroom. Now he's a server. <laughs> right, right. The problem with the I mean, server, he, he ran the defense, and now he's got to take orders. The problem with the server is that you end up eating too much of the profits. As you're bringing it out to the table. But um, anyway, uh, so that happened. Kevin O'Connell got elevated to offensive coordinator. You know, we were talking about that as a possibility on Tuesday. That happened. I made the case on yesterday's show that um, I believe that, you know, Sean McVay, and this isn't, this is what I think everybody's conclusion is. I'm not trying to make it out to be somehow a unique position, but I, I do think that he's a potential head coach candidate a year from now for them. I, I think one of the reasons they didn't want him to go is they didn't want to lose the next Sean McVay. And Torrey Smith, who played with him in San Francisco, essentially said he's the next Sean McVay. Well, if Matt LaFleur can get hired as the head coach of the Green Bay Packers on basically a flimsy uh, resume, why can't Kevin O'Connell? Absolutely. I could see that. Yeah, so there that's that's what you've missed the last two days. I want to Yeah, go ahead. And and if if he is a head coaching candidate, Redskins fans uh next year will be up in arms about hiring him here and firing Jay if they don't already fire Jay at at that point, you know, thinking he'll be another Sean McVay and leave the building. And if he's another Sean McVay, He'll realize that this is the last place he wants to be a head coach after having spent a couple of years here. So he'll be gone too. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's so much that can happen between now and and this time next year or end of December next year. But uh, the odds right now of Jay Gruden being the coach in 2020 are less than fifty fifty. 
You know, at best, yeah. they're they're. I mean, the the it's probably like a one in four chance that he's the coach in twenty twenty. I don't even want to speculate on Bruce agree. because at this point, I don't. I just don't know if anybody can guess properly on Bruce because of the relationship he has I with agree Dan with that too. and the fact that yeah. there's he's such a security uh, blanket for for Dan. But I just cannot imagine if they. You know, they're going to need to, I said this a year ago, so I'll probably be wrong a year from now, but if I were posting odds, and I'm sure the odds are out there already, I just haven't looked for them in terms of first coach to be fired next year, um, but I would I would guess that, that it's, that Jay, there's a one in four chance that Jay Gruden's the coach in 2020, that there's a 75% chance he's not. So anyway. That, that probably may be, but, but you know, yeah, that may be. Um, did you see the Maryland story about how much they spent on the football investigation? I mean, can, can this can this whole chapter get any sleazier? I mean, you know, just when you think it's safe, just when people, whether, you know, I think they should or not, are feeling a little bit better, maybe about Maryland football with Mike Loxley there, and then you're brought back to this reminder of how ugly – that whole chapter was in in the in the state of Maryland, not just the the, the uh, college of University of Maryland. That people profited off of the investigation uh, into the death uh, of a football player. All right, I want to I want to start with this. You felt like they needed to have an an in. in you felt very uh, strongly about investigation with outside people, right? Yes. Okay. So they put together a group to conduct this investigation into um, into the tragic uh, death and the football program, Durkin's future, et cetera, the whole thing. Uh, how did you think they were going to get that done? Did you think they would be able to get that done for free? I didn't know Bonnie Bernstein was going to be one of the investigators. Come on. Where's, where's, where's the disconnect there? Well, she pocketed one hundred eighteen thousand dollars. Well, they wanted her to be a part of this group. Well, you know what? That's what I mean. The group was tainted from the start. Why? It was Maryland. It was Maryland boosters. Well, it wasn't all Maryland boosters, Tommy. No, my, my, no, the, it wasn't. But the, the, the law. But there shouldn't have been any. They had. There they, have been zero. For those that haven't seen the story yet, um, Maryland spent one point five seven million dollars on the investigation into the football program, uh, and there were, you know, several people in that investigation um, that were brought in from the outside to participate in that investigation and sit on a special commission. Um, as part of the investigation, that build more than six figures apiece for two months of work. Now, much of the investigation's legwork was done by a Baltimore law firm, DLA Piper. All right, they charged the university six hundred thirty-six thousand seven hundred and seventy-two dollars for their services. Uh, the eight commission members um, each charged an hourly rate of six hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, Charles Sheeler, the DLA Piper attorney who served as the commission's point person, billed the university system for $283,855 for himself. And then Ben Legg, a retired uh, federal judge, charged $161,000. Alex Williams was also a retired judge, charged $155,000 plus. And then here were some more interesting ones. 
Um, and you mentioned Bonnie Bernstein. Bonnie Bernstein, who is a Maryland graduate, for those that didn't know, remember she was uh, a journalist and part of CBS Sports for a long period of time. She billed the university. She was on the commission. She billed the university $118,463. And then Tom McMillan, who is a former Maryland basketball star, former member of Congress, uh, billed $58,000. Uh, uh, Bob Ehrlich, former governor, $40,000. And then Doug Williams, and I knew he was on this commission. He billed the university $30,550. It sounds like McMillan, Ehrlich, and Doug didn't get the Bonnie Bernstein program, which was unfortunate, or they just didn't put in the same number of hours, which is probably more likely. Um, Well, you know what? They didn't have to ride Amtrak from New York uh, to, to, to do the investigation. Oh. Apparently, it's very. It costs a lot of money. <laughs> no, it doesn't cost Amtrak. that much money. That's that can't Thousands be. Of dollars. That can't be where. I, I, have you seen her audit of her? Like, was no, her was her invoice that, audited? That part, I've seen mentioned that part of the billing was for train rides back and forth from New York. Yeah, in the article it says $2,600 for each train ride, which presumably also includes, like, she was on the clock while she was riding the train, is what I assumed right. the prices were. So Her yeah. hourly rate. 14 train rides to and from New York, where she is based, billing about $2,600 for each. So it's a three-hour, you know, three and a half, depending if she was on the fast train or the, the slower train. There, I mean, it's... Oh, wait a minute. What train do you think she was on? <laughs> Of course she was on the fast train. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Doug Williams had a car service drive from Ashburn to Baltimore and back, which resulted in a 407. Okay, l- l- let me let me get to the point, because I'm, I'm getting bogged down in minutia here. I just wanted people to have a sense of what the story was. If you're going to put together a commission and you're going to ask outside people to participate in that commission, then you have to pay them. No one's going to do it for free. Nobody's going to take time out of their lives, Tommy. And t- and by the way, in, mo- in many of these cases, perhaps time away from their job to do it for free. So I, I, I saw a lot of people talking about the cost of it. I mean, we can, you know, you can, you can be critical of how much they paid certain people and you'd like to know what they did before you really were super critical about the payment because I don't really know what their responsibilities necessarily were. And they weren't really, you know, explained in great detail. But I, I you weren't going to get it done for free. They were going to charge Kevin, money for this. You, you said outside people. These are not outside people. Most You're of them are. Out- no, they're not. Yeah, they are. No, if, if No, they're not. If they're in well, the state of Maryland, they are not outside people. If you were put, truly picking a transparent investigative team to look into this, you're not hiring anybody with any connections to the state of Maryland to in- investigate a state school. You're just not doing that. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's a conflict of interest. Well, we knew who— You're not going to get a legitimate look. Did you have this problem when they were investigating in terms of the people that were on this commission? Yes. Yes, you've got to hire. I mean, the whole part of the whole problem with the, with the George McNair investigation and what's happened since then is you have to be, get people as far away from Maryland, the school, the sporting program, the football 
program as possible to get a fair look into what happened here and how bad it was. Because the people who I talked to, for the most part, uh, connected with Maryland uh, sports or or the school in any way, always have a always have like an asterisk as far as, as what happened here. Not 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 that what happened to Jordan McNair wasn't tragic, but the implications and what it meant. I still don't think most people connected with the school really take understand what happened there. Look, I, I just don't. I, I you know I what? just don't understand. Have, I, I mean, like again, I just don't think people realize from the outside looking in how toxic the uh, University of Maryland looked to the rest of the country. And you know, people have moved on uh, per uh, per my prediction because I don't think we've mentioned it until this report. I guess. Look, there. We're talking about two different things. You're talking about the makeup of the investigation of the commission. Um, to oversee the investigation, and I'm more stuck on the problem that people seem to have with the cost of it. You know, when I saw the number, it didn't seem super expensive to me at first, and then I saw the reaction of all the different, you know, uh, uh, to, to Bonnie Bernstein and various others that were billing these, uh, you know, to, to many people, these outrageous am- amounts of money, which really, you know, is probably commensurate with the time that they were spending. Like, it wasn't ridiculous that Bonnie Bernstein, had she given that many hours to this process, was paid that. I, that's what, that, that's what, that would be my take. And, and then, you know, I, I read a little bit further in the, post, in the Post story yesterday about the cost of these investigations from other universities. The Penn State thing cost $23.5 million. Now, that was a lot different. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to suggest yes, it that it was that it was you know apples to apples. But even the North Carolina you know academics uh, scandal cost the University of North Carolina 18 million dollars just in legal bills. So I, I this was not like this outrageous sum of money spent to investigate the football program was really the point I wanted to make. Okay, I, I get that. I think I think some people were offended by Maryland people pocketing the money. I think other people were offended by the pathetic results that came out of the investigation, uh, which resulted in the uh, Board of Regents deciding to keep D.J. Durkin, which lasted one day. (laughs) Right. It's like, here's our report. This is our recommendation. Great. We did it. Oh, no, we're going to we're not going to take the we're not going to take your recommendation. By the way, if you missed this story, Wallace Lowe, uh, who was going to leave in June, I believe, is now back for another year as school president, Um, which, uh, you know, that was part of the whole fallout, too, is him, you know, basically dying on the vine and saying, you know, take take me with it, you know, in June. Uh, but apparently that's not going to happen either. Um, I, he, sh- he should be gone, and Damon Evans should definitely be gone. Gone. They play Wisconsin. The whole board of they play Wisconsin tomorrow night out. in a ranked matchup. That's all I care about right now. Um, <laughs> I uh, It's true. I This stuff, the only thing that set me off yesterday when I read it is when, I, when people started reacting about how outrageously expensive – it was and how how could they spend that much money and how could they spend this on this person and that on that person well that's what it costs the, you, no one was going to do this for free and then when the post story you know went into to further detail about the cost of some of these investigations and commissions at other places it's like they got a bargain for what they did 
Um, I wish well, my only I think my people only would, people would I think people would say that they didn't get a bargain that it was a waste of money. Well, considering that they didn't take the recommendation, they could have just fired Durkin from the get-go and not paid anything. I, the, I, I, I don't think I've said this before, and I don't think we've talked about this before, but the reminder that Doug Williams was part of this commission, um, why was Doug Williams a part of this? Why would one of the senior people in an NFL organization during the season take any time to do something like this. I, I I felt that way when it came out. I don't think I ever said it. I don't think we talked about Doug in particular. You know, some of these other people, retired judge, retired federal judge, Bonnie Bernstein, I don't even know what Bonnie's doing anymore. Uh, McMillan, you know, is, is a retired congressman. I, he may be working too. I don't know what Governor Ehrlich is doing. But Doug Williams is a senior VP in an NFL team that was in the middle of a season. Why w- why was he taking one minute to spend on anything other than Redskins business? Well, you know, here's a possibility. Maybe they gave him a cell phone to use as part of the uh, investigation. <laughs> uh, since he's limited as to how much he can use the cell phone, the Redskins. It doesn't say it doesn't say in the in the story that they gave him a cell phone. But ser- <laughs> but seriously, you're right. It's absurd. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, are you are you with me? Like, I, I, if I were yes, if I were 100%. Snyder, if I were Snyder or Bruce, I would have said, Doug, you're you're here helping us run our business and our organization. We're in the middle of a football season. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, but the fact why, are, why aren't you out on the street looking for help for it? The fact that he went and did it, and presumably got approval from Bruce and Dan to go do it, just speaks to, I think, on some level, his importance in the organization. Yeah, I may be completely does. overplaying that. I, I'm sure I'm exaggerating it, but I remember thinking it at the time, and then when I saw that you know he got paid for this too, I'm like, what did Doug Williams need thirty thousand bucks to go spend? You know, four or five, you know, eight, and I don't, I don't even know how many meetings he was present for, and how many hours he spent on this, but. It just doesn't seem to be like if I'm the owner of the Redskins or the team president of the Redskins, what I want my senior VP of football personnel to be doing. Are they called? Great. Tell them you're, you can't do it. You're working. You're, you're employed right now. That's great that they'd yeah. like you to sit on that commission, Doug. And you'd be great on that commission. But you're not. we need you here every day. We need you here focused on our business. I don't know. And don't answer your phone. Don't answer your phone because we just made another trade, and we we'll tell you about it, and we'll tell you about it later. But just don't answer your phone because they're going to ask you about this trade that we just made, and we don't want anybody knowing about it yet, including you. <laughs> um, the Super Bowl is on Sunday, and it's funny we're here on Thursday, and I I really haven't spent a lot of time this week talking about the game, and I am actually excited about this game. I don't I don't know about you. The Super Bowl is very anticlimactic, I think most years. Um you know, it's not our your your football season almost ends with championship Sunday. You know, this past Sunday there's no football. You got to wait 2 weeks for one game. All of this build up I couldn't care less about. I I do miss being at the Super Bowl with people that I work with, but I don't miss Radio Row, which you know I thought was the biggest joke and the biggest waste yeah. of time. And it was. Yeah. 
I still can't believe. Yeah, but I, but, but I used to get a, a free tie every year from Steve Young when he would be <laughs> touting Van Usen. I mean, some of the things that they, I mean, hey, uh, Willie Lanier's coming by and he's pushing, uh, you know, Rain-X. Or uh, we got, you know, we got, we got, uh, I, I mean, it was, it was one old football player after another that you and I or Cooley and I had no interest in spending part of our show talking to that's not true uh, some of I them had, some, I had some of them we were excited about and some of them proved to be better than we thought going in but for the most part they were duds listen i got a chance to talk to deacon jones on radio row yeah for that i'll forever be grateful for and brooklyn decker brooklyn decker was our, our all-time favorite <laughs> but also we remember we had floyd mayweather on that's right. We 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 did have Floyd Mayweather on. That was the the one that was memorable wow. for me because I it, in it's somewhere on YouTube. Somebody sent it to me a couple of years ago. Um, because I, I I got him a little bit upset when I said, "When are you just going to fight Pacquiao? This is a joke that you guys are sitting around, you know, waiting for this thing. That we're all sitting around waiting for this. This is the only thing that anybody wants to see." And he got he got really animated. <laughs> And somebody sent it to me like three or four years ago because it was on YouTube. You and I sitting there interviewing Floyd Mayweather. But that was a that was a fun interview. That was a yes, great interview. Was. You know who my favorite interview was? Um, we I, he he was on Radio Row every year, so it was fun the first time, and then after that, it was like okay, enough. But Michael Haynes is still one of my all time favorite NFL players. I think he's the greatest cornerback that's ever lived. And he was he was really good and interesting and smart, and uh, rem- had great stories and remembered everything from you know those Raiders when he was with the Raiders in particular when they beat the Redskins in the Super Bowl. But Radio Row is is a is a waste. It, Tom, last year or the year before, I forget the last time we were there. Um, I want to say that forty percent to fifty percent of the tables were manned by a producer and no radio talent. Because everybody realized the cost of it was not worth it, but we did have yeah, some, I know we did have some fun times South Beach Dallas yes 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 we did <laughs> remember Dallas 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 where 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 we were in, in a local prison <laughs> that, uh, staying over for accommodations and then the ice storm that froze the entire city for a week the the first night we get we, first we check into that hotel the motel. And we were like, what in, where did they put us? And that night, it was one of the worst ice storms. It was, it was a Monday night. We got in on a Monday, I think, or maybe it was Sunday uh, night. And, it, you know, because I, I can't remember if we were there for the whole week or not. And that thing shut down the city for the entire week. But was somehow we, yeah. ma- we made it every day. I had to drop you off at the front door every day because you couldn't walk on the ice. No, no, <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't have done that. And we basically, I remember going on the air Monday morning and saying, now I know what it's like to do time. <laughs> That's exactly you know? right. That was your whole thing all week. Now I know what yeah. it's like to do time. Because that place. I mean, it was, it was that, unbelievable. That, I mean, they had, yeah. they had a cop there all the time. Uh, they did. You're right. They, yes, they did. It, they had a cop there all the time. I mean, Carmine and Sapienza with the, the accommodations. Oh it was Carmine more than it was Chuck. I mean, Rick was as cheap as, I mean. But seriously, like it was, it was totally unproductive to stay in some of the places that they put us. You didn't see the place though in Phoenix that they put us. That 
when we got there, all of us refused to to stay there. They had checked. Really, it was a crack. It was a crack infested motel about twenty five miles outside of Phoenix. And Cooley and I uh, got there, and we immediately said, it ain't happening. There's no possible way. And I think we called Chuck up, and you know, we made our own reservations at another place. It wasn't high-end, but it was at least safe um, and, uh, and a little bit closer. But it was always amazing to me, these people. It's like, you could have spent an extra 30 bucks a night, and we could have been a block from Radio Row. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, seriously. Um, but anyway, uh, nobody cares about that that rant there. The Radio Row thing, though, I, I don't miss that at all. I do not miss being there. Especially, I mean, Atlanta. Next year it's in South Beach. I know. Next year next year it's in Miami. Yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah, we can... Well, even that, though. When it's in Miami, it's not really in Miami, Kevin. I know. But maybe we can take the podcast to Miami next year. Lauderdale. Maybe we can take the podcast to Miami next year, and I'll get us the best accommodations. Okay, we'll stay in the W. We'll stay somewhere in. really, really nice. I probably have to book it now, and then we'll <laughs> we'll figure out how to haggle them when we get there down to a better rate. You know people, Kevin. <laughs> I don't know that many people. You know people. Um, who do you like in the game? Okay, I I I don't care how many times they lose in the Super Bowl. I'm never picking against Bill Belichick in the Super Bowl. I'm revisiting for my column tomorrow the uh, 1991 Super Bowl between them and the Bills and what he did as a defensive coordinator for the Giants to enable them to stop the most high-powered offense that that we had seen probably since that Redskins offense of 83 – uh, in that Bills offense that scored 51 points in the NFC Championship game. Against the Raiders. And they, held, and they held them to 13 points in this Super Bowl. And it was all Belichick. And I'm right, and I say, you know, people say he's won five Super Bowls. I know he had two rings as a Giants defensive coordinator. I think that 91 Super Bowl is on his, on, is on his watch. I give it to him. I think he's got six Super Bowl rings as a head coach. I, I mean, because his, it was such a brilliant game plan where basically he said, we're going to let Thurman Thomas run for 200 yards if he wants to. But we're not going to let Jim Kelly and that no huddle offense beat us. You're remembering one part and, of that, though. You're, 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 you're not remembering one part of that. And that is that uh, that offense dominated the time of possession. They had over, I think they had 40 minutes of time of possession in that Super Bowl, if my memory serves me correctly, with O.J. Anderson, um, with Otis Anderson end, end, ending up getting the MVP. I mean, they dominated. Oh, yeah. Kelly never – now, look, when they had the ball, it was an incredible defensive job. But the, the game was dominated by the Giants' ability to move – the football and to dominate time of possession in that game. There were no turnovers in that game, if I recall, not one. And it was dominated by the Giants and their ability to control the clock and control the football and keep it away from Jim Kelly. I'm just pulling up right now the Super Bowl box I get score that, from that. But 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 if if it wasn't for Belichick's defensive game plan, that would that the Giants would have been playing catch up football all afternoon uh, that's totally fair and he, they had to stay it wasn't like they weren't getting the ball and Belichick's defense right. was shutting them out but when the Giants got the ball 
they were keeping it away from from Kelly and, and Thomas and company. Here it is. Oh, yeah. The time of possession in that game. The Giants ran 71 plays to the to the Bills' 55. Um, 40 minutes, 33 seconds for the Giants. 19 minutes, 27 seconds for Buffalo. Look, but thing they work hand in hand. I mean, you can't dominate time of possession if your defense doesn't get the ball back for you. But then again, you can't dominate time of possession if you don't make first downs and churn the clock when you have the ball. And the Giants yeah, did but that. You tur- but, but you turned the Buffalo team inside out. Yeah, you did. It was an offensive juggernaut. And they were reduced to they, they were they were brought to their knees. I mean, their strength. Uh, you, you took away their strength. You're always going to win usually in, in a in a game like that. Keep in mind, in that game, Buffalo had a 12 to three lead. The Giants came back from nine down in in the to win that game. They were nine down late in the first half. You know that that was. That it, oh, yeah. it wasn't like the Giants got on top and then the Bills were pressing. Um, look, you're, you're not wrong. Belichick was brilliant, but the Giant offensive, um, you know, clock, uh, you know, churning uh, offense was was really, really impressive. They had long drives in that game where the clock was just rolling in that game. That was um, and that was that was Jeff Hostetler. It was, it was Hostetler and Otis, and and at that point, how old was Otis Anderson at that point? Like thirty two, something like that, right? Maybe yeah, something like that. He was Adrian Peterson age, actually, I think. Yeah. Uh, how old was he in that Super Bowl? My fault. Yeah, he was 33. 33 in that Super Bowl. Yeah. But uh, – So, that's, that, that's, so again, Super Bowl, I'm picking Belichick. They, they, you know, I was surprised at how they fell behind so quickly last year, uh, how he got caught uh, short in terms of the matchup last year. But, uh, you know, the young genius versus the old genius, I'm going with the Patriots and Belichick. I'm going to have my pick tomorrow, but I like the Rams, I think. I think I like the Rams. I think the Rams, the the one problem that the Patriots have always had um, when they've lost in the postseason is interior defensive pressure, the kind that Donald and Sue can generate. You're right. And in fact, some of the you know uh, the, the Miami teams that gave that have given Brady trouble over the years. Some of those teams, you know, Sue was on, and he was a big part of that. I, I that that to me is always the key in watching the Patriots play. It's like if Brady gets pressure up the middle, where he's got to get off of his spot, he has trouble. The Patriots have trouble. They are vulnerable uh, to losing the game. If the if the, the pressure is coming from the edge. He never has a problem with edge pressure. Never. Balls out before the guy ever gets there, before he turns the corner. He sees it or he steps up and makes the throw. It's that, you know, Justin Tuck interior pressure that that, you know, throttled him in, in the in that first Super Bowl game that really got to him and bothered him in that first Super Bowl game. Those, those are the teams that that do it, and the Rams are capable of that in this particular game. I I, I, I like their chances. I do. Look, if that makes sense, I, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if that's the way it unfolded. I mean, I, I don't think I don't necessarily think that it felt Belichick victory is a lock. I just I just am not going to pick against that guy. Just not going to. But you're right. What you said makes a lot of sense. Um, yesterday, I, I have to agree with that. Yesterday, Goodell held his, uh, you know, his annual Super Bowl week press conference and. 
you know, a lot of it was about the blown call in the Rams Saints game, and you know, he had he had a ton to say about it. He said it's a play that we sh- that should be called. We're going to make sure we do everything possible to address this these issues going forward and see if there are improvements we can make with instant replay or anything else. I understand the emotions. Um, we understand the frustration the Saints feel. Um, whenever officiating is part of any kind of discussion post game, it's never a good outcome for us. We know that our clubs know that our officials know that, but we also know our officials are human. Um, I disagree that it's never a good outcome for them. It never hurts them. It never hurts them. These it never controversies. Seems to. These controversies no, it, become it, it, legendary. They become games that we 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 remember because of uh, a blown call or a bad call, and it never seems to hurt the league. I, you and I, I don't think we've had this conversation in great detail because I think I've done it when you've not been on the show. But I am not in favor of replay for subjective penalties. I'm not in favor of that. I am in favor of it, but. I think that the league has to invest money in a system uh, and constantly tinker with that system to make sure it's almost like a fail-safe mechanism. In other words, uh, it's only used in the extreme circumstances. In other words, look, your argument against using replay in a worst-case scenario shouldn't be the worst case scenario if you can overturn those calls doesn't have to be that way you know so i mean the league has to think this through and come up with with a, a system in place where the best that they can it can't be abused uh, goodell said and that may yeah go ahead i'm sorry it, 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 that may cost them an investment of personnel extra personnel to make sure that doesn't happen you know, I've heard people say, well, coaches are going to, you know, call a challenge on every uh, pass interference with two minutes left. Well, the coaches don't have the challenge. This is, this is not their call. This, this is a call that's done someplace else. And I don't know how you set it up, but, but to deny technology because you can't come up with a system that limits the amount of abuses for it, then that's on you. You should be able to come up with something. There are a couple of things that he said that I wanted to um, just read real quickly. Remember the uh, the rule book um, uh, that uh, the rule book section that empowered Goodell to overturn a result or order the game to be picked up from the point where the the call was made. If, if in the sense of in the event that it was a uh, an extraordinary unfair event, I think is what it was or unfair act. Um, he he. Somebody asked him about that in the press conference yesterday, and he said that was not a consideration ever. Um, he sp- he specifically said it was a complaint by a team over a judgment call, and that the clause in the rule book um, does not authorize him to act in those particular situations. He also said, with respect to you know instant replay in these particular situations, he said there have been a variety of proposals over the last 15, 20 years. Should replay be expanded? It does not cover judgment calls. That was a judgment call. The other complication is that it was a no call. Our coaches and clubs have been very resistant. There's not been support to date. 
about having replay, uh, having a replay official or somebody in the league's officiating department in New York throw a flag when there's no flag. They have not voted for that in the past. Doesn't mean that they won't do it now. It's something that we're going to put in front of the competition committee um, to see if there's an answer. Um, but he said, you know, my role is just to. Uh, make uh, sure that the competition committee understands um, this and analyzes it and then take takes their recommendation. Anyway, I, they, I, I personally don't think anything's going to come of this. I don't. I think that they, they've got to get, uh, what, three-quarters of the teams typically in these competition committee rule changes to to uh, vote on it and to, to, to get it ratified. I just don't see this call being the one that changes the view. I know that people feel that way in the moment, but by the time they get together and start to meet on this stuff, it's just going to look like one of those, you know, and we've gone through all of them. There have been plenty of them in the past that we refer to when we think of, of memorable games that were blown by officials' calls. I, I get that, Kevin. I think this one resonates farther. Uh, I think people who don't like replay forget the what the world was like in the NFL, in big games in the NFL, without replay, and how egregious and how horrible some of the decisions that were made, how costly they were. This was reminiscent of the days when they, there was no replay, period. I think this one's going to resonate a little bit more. And I got to tell you, I am rooting just for, look, I generally root for chaos, and I know it has, you know, zero chance of happening, but I am rooting for any lawsuit that the NFL would lose in a case like this, where a judge would, would say, you got to go back and play the game. How could that ever, how could that be a ruling I don't on, know. on a private business? I don't know, <laughs> but, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm cheering for it a thousand percent. Yeah. Um, you know, and I said this the day after, and I'll just say it again, because I, I, this is the way I really feel. I'm not in favor of it, but if it happens, I'm not going to be like incensed that they've added more replay to the game. It just seems to me that we're going to create more problems than it's worth. Um, all right. Uh, tomorrow also, Tommy, is the Hall of Fame uh, vote. Uh, there's 15 modern era finalists right now. And they, they, they meet Saturday in Atlanta. You know, would you prefer to do it this way? I mean, you're a Hall of Fame voter. You get to vote from your own home. There are no meetings for this that you have to attend, right? Right. I mean, I think, look, the Baseball Hall of Fame voting gets roasted all the time, too. But I think it's a much better system where basically you're sent a paper ballot and you've got the names on the ballot and you check them off uh, and you send it in. There's no there's no closed door room where people are making the case for one candidate over another. And, you know, and, and right now. Most voters make their, their ballots public. That doesn't happen with the Pro Football uh, Hall of Fame. So I think that I think the system is really warped, and I think it hurts candidates. I think it hurts candidates like, like the guy everybody in Washington wants to see in the Hall of Fame, and that's Joe Jacoby, who belongs there. Right. Um, and he's not, you know, he's not he's not eligible for this anymore for the for, for the modern. Right era. now he goes uh, yeah. to the uh, as a senior committee member, and that's. That's very competitive. It took Jerry Kramer almost 50 years I know. from that famous block in the Ice Bowl to get into the Hall of Fame. So the you know they've got 15 modern era finalists. They meet tomorrow in Atlanta. 
Um, they, they trim it from 15 to 10, uh, and then from 10 to 5, and then the remaining five finalists are voted on individually. Just a thumbs up or thumbs down, a yes or a no, and they got to get 80% uh, yes uh, to make the Hall of Fame. Um, there, to me, there are a couple of locks uh, here. Champ Bailey, I think, is an absolute lock to get in uh, tomorrow. Um, Ed Reed is a, is 100% in uh, yes. tomorrow, in, yes. in my view. Um, and I think I think that was the list for me. Uh, was there another one? I'm going down the list right now in terms of absolutely in. Oh, Tony Gonzalez, I think, is in. So Gonzalez, Reed, and Champ Bailey, I think, are the locks to get in. You don't have a problem with either one of those three, right? No. No, I don't. Uh, Steve Atwater no. still on the ballot. I don't think he was a Hall of Famer in my view. Tony Baselli uh, is on the on the ballot. Um, I actually think that Baselli is a Hall of Famer. I don't know if he'll get in tomorrow. Isaac Bruce uh, is among the 15 finalists. Um, I... I, you know, the receiver thing, it's really funny when you go through the receivers, some of the receivers that are in with the numbers that they have, whether it be a Lynn Swan or even to a, a, you know, a lesser degree, Michael Irvin's numbers. Remember, we were comparing those with Art Monks for a long period of time. Isaac Bruce and Gary Clark. Yeah, Gary Clark numbers compared to, to Michael Irvin's. Isaac Bruce was never a first team all pro, not once and made just four Pro Bowls. Um, but he had eight 1000 yard seasons and he's 13th all time in catches. Uh, you know, to me, it's not Isaac Bruce is not a lock Hall of Famer. Like I, I don't think I, I gave you the three that should be in. I don't even know if I'd vote for Isaac Bruce next year. Uh, Alan Fanica, um, he was a multi-year Pro Bowler. Um, you know, with the with the Steelers, uh, you know, primarily, and uh, I, I would be surprised if eventually he doesn't get in. Um. Tony Gonzalez is a lock. Uh, Steve Hutchinson's on the ballot. I don't, I don't know if he is a, a Pro Bowler. I'd have to look at his numbers. Edron James is always one that's interesting to me um, because the people that played in that era and like you know who loves Edron James, and I know he's a Miami guy, but Clinton Portis thinks Edron James was great. Cooley, I think, thinks Edron James was vastly underrated. Like players really thought a lot of Edron James. He was a first-team All-Pro selection once but made four Pro Bowls. Um, he's 13th uh, all-time in rushing yards. Um, it's going to be close for him. I, I, people in people that played seem to have a higher opinion of him than writers and fans. Ty Laws on, on the ballot again. Uh, apparently Belichick and Brady wrote letters for him. Uh, five Pro Bowls, two first-team All-Pros. Um, he's pretty damn close to being one. John Lynch is a is is not in the Hall of Fame yet. Uh, oh boy, he played like a Hall of a Hall of Fame player to me. I thought he hit the way he hit and the way he played the position was Hall of Fame worthy. Uh, Kevin Mawai, uh, I think, is going to be in this time. I think there's a good chance he's in. And then Richard Seymour. I don't necessarily consider him to be like a, a guaranteed Hall of Famer, um, but he was a three-time uh, three first-team All-Pro, and he's another guy that Belichick and Brady wrote letters for. Yeah. Look, I mean, I'd be a generous Hall of Fame voter. Cause you I always are, right? Generally. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, so I would vote a lot of those guys and just a handful of them. Not. And let me just point out, again, talking about the process, uh, 
we've had two idiots representing Washington football players on, on the, in this process. We had Dave Elfin, who didn't even cover football uh, for years, still making the case uh, for, for, for vote for uh, candidates. And Art Monk uh, got in on his watch, but it had nothing to do with, with him. And now we've got uh, the uh, chief clown, Larry Michael, of all people, making the case for for candidates when when they come well, there's up. no candidate so, he's making a case for this I know year. that yeah. but 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 he did last year yeah, for, for Jacoby uh, and it was a big turnoff in the room from what I've heard a big turnoff so it's it's a screwed up system it's a screwed up system I guess I don't know I don't I, not like us we have a great system I mean, when when Redskins are involved on the final ballot, I'm usually very involved in this in in looking through all of the candidates, and I haven't spent as much time this year. But just, you know, it's one of those things that when the player's name is mentioned, as a football fan, as a hardcore football fan, you have an immediate reaction. Hall of Fame, yes or no. Hall of Fame career, yes or no. Champ Bailey, obviously. Ed Reed, in a, I mean, faster than any one of the three that I said should be in. Gonzalez, Champ Bailey, Ed Reed. Ed Reed's among the two, three, four greatest safeties in the history of the game. Not debatable. Um, I, I do think that Tony Gonzalez, like thinking about his career, he's a Hall of Famer. You know, he was he was the best at his position, or certainly one of the two or three best at his position for a long period of time. You know, his, yes, I agree. And Champ Bailey was truly a lockdown corner, if there is such a thing. And, you know, yeah. and it, it, the Hall of Fame portion of his career was much more so in Denver than it was, than it was here. It's, it's, it's a shame that he couldn't have had that career here. As much as I like Clinton Portis personally, and I've told him this to, to his face before, I think it was a ridiculous trade. The Redskins should have never given up Champ Bailey in a second rounder for Clinton Portis. That was a bad one-sided trade. It worked out in, to, to the extent that Clinton Portis was a very good player for the Redskins during the course of the, uh, of, of his career here. Um, but you don't give up running backs for corners. You know, you don't give up, you know, great running backs for great corners. And then on top of it, throw a second rounder into the deal. Yeah. You know, this was the You're beginning right. of, this was really the beginning, Tommy, in 2004. Not that we didn't have an inkling that Snyder and Vinny were, were pretty bad at, at player and roster management at that point. But when they made that trade and Vinny Serrato crowed about that trade, I, 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 there wasn't one person that followed the NFL that thought that Denver didn't completely fleece the Redskins in that deal. Like, no, wait, wait a minute, who got the second rounder? You mean the Redskins got the second rounder for Denver? They got the they they got a they got a shutdown corner, so they gave up. No, the Redskins gave up the second rounder. Now we know. Yeah, but but. But that was wasn't that a Joe trade? Wasn't that a Gibbs trade? Well, it was no. Vinny was st- Vinny was very involved in all. Joe wanted. I know that. Joe, but, wanted, but, Joe wanted Clinton, but Joe wasn't good at that stuff. He wasn't good at that stuff when 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 Charlie and and Bobby were running the organization. That wasn't his right. you know area of expertise. Um, but the and and you know when Joe came back, it was made clear that you know Vinny was still going to be a part of the organization and was going to be you know in charge of of player acquisition, obviously with Joe's input, you know clearly, um, and and significant input. But 
But we know now, in hindsight and after the fact, that the Redskins had to deal Champ Bailey. And there, there's a lot of stories and right. a lot of reasons why we won't go into them. But they had to get him out of this particular area. They had to trade him. And, and Denver had him, you know, had him where they wanted him, as they did multiple yeah. times. Um, anyway, uh, what else you got for me? I got nothing else. I guess I'm coming back. Yeah, come back. You know, they could also they they could cancel my flight. You know, I can only hope. They can and you stay. Well, you can just pretend that it got canceled. You don't have to. I mean, just pretend it got canceled and stay a day uh, extra. By the way, no, there, I, I, there, there I, is some there is some news on Bryce Harper, and I just want to share that with you. Apparently, he's going to meet with the Padres. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, they've got a team. You haven't mentioned, have a you haven't mentioned Padres before. No, no, I never have, and I don't think that'll happen uh, because they're a long way from winning, and they have an idiot for a general manager, by the way. Uh, but geographically, that would make sense since it, you know it, it's it's in the uh, southwest portion of the country, uh, and uh, Bryce being based out in Las Vegas. I see the geographical connection. I don't see any other way he winds up with the Padres. Do you do you refer to California or San Diego as the Southwest? Well, I used to refer to it as the Northeast, but somebody corrected me and said that's the Southwest <laughs> part I'm of not, the country. I'm, yes, I, I, I. In this case, I would. I know. I. I just. I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just that whenever. I refer to the Southwest. I'm always thinking of like Arizona, New Mexico, and California is like California, Southern California, yeah. Northern California. Like San Diego, I refer to as yeah, it's in Southern California. I don't refer to it as it's in the Southwest part of the United States. The Southwest to me means more Arizona, New Mexico, maybe West Texas, uh, maybe Nevada. I don't know. Just well, I was trying to connect Southern Nevada. Is- his Nevada roots to okay. San Diego. All right. I was just, I, I was curious if more people referred to San Diego as being a part of the Southwest United States or just being in Southern California. I think this was an isolated incident and I can guarantee you I'll never do it again. Well, you certainly, at least you didn't refer to him, uh, refer to San Diego as being in the Northeast. I'm glad you didn't do that. All right, get out of here. Yeah, I'm, I've learned my I'm done with you. Go enjoy the, the final day of warmth and sun and when you get back tonight and you get off the plane, just remember it was much colder last night than it was when you okay. land tonight. Okay. All right. All see right. You. Thanks. All right, boss. He's going to be cold when he gets back tonight. Yeah, he <clears throat> He's going to be really cold when he gets back tonight. Uh, Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep will keep you warm. They're located in Fairfax. Head on out there. Ask for Ralph Perkins. He's the best. They're, lo- they're located right there in Fairfax Circle. When you get there, tell them I sent you. If you're thinking about something new or something used, just give them a shot. You know, if you're interested in a Jeep Cherokee or a Jeep Grand Cherokee or a Jeep Wrangler or a Ram pickup or a Chrysler Town and Country minivan or a Dodge, uh, you know, Grand Caravan, any of those vehicles, you're thinking about something new that's Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, or Subaru, give them a shot. If you go to FarishCars.com right now, they've got live inventory, live pricing, their best deals. Uh, they've got some of their best rebates of the year going on right now. Uh, every make, model, and color you're looking for on the lot, you'll be able to drive it 
uh, home today. Um, best rebates on uh, that Jeep Cherokee I mentioned, also the Grand Cherokee and the Wrangler. Lots of all three of them on the lot, which means the best deals of the year on those. Again, Ralph Perkins runs it. Ask for him if you head out there. If you want to just see before you head out there everything they've got, live pricing, live inventory, best deals, go to farishcars.com. So today is January 31st. Do you know what you were doing exactly 31 years ago today? Well, Aaron probably was barely even alive 31 years ago. I was alive, but probably in a crib or something somewhere. I was watching Super Bowl 22, Redskins, Denver. 31 years ago today was the Doug Williams Super Bowl. And it's one of my favorites because, you know, at that point, the Redskins had just won one Super Bowl. They'd gone to back to back in the 82 season and the 83 season, um, beating the Dolphins in Super Bowl 17 and then losing to the Raiders in Super Bowl 18. Uh, and then for the next couple of years, you know, they were fighting to get back to it. The, they lo- they had lost to uh, the Bears in the playoffs uh, at home in 84. And then in 85, they didn't make the postseason. 86, they lost to the Giants in the NFC title game uh, after uh, beating the Bears on the road. And then in 87, um, the 87 season, they got into the playoffs. That was the year of the uh, replacement players. Um, that came in and did a great job for them. Uh, the Redskins had to go on the road to beat the Bears uh, in Soldier Field. Then they beat the Vikings at home in the NFC Championship game. And then they went out to San Diego to face the Broncos. And it was a game in which the, you know the Redskins uh, didn't appear ready at the start. You know they were down ten nothing. Doug Williams. Uh, went uh, dropped back to throw uh, late first quarter, stretched out his knee on a slippery turf out at Jack Murphy Stadium. wasn't wasn't a great turf, uh, great uh, field situation out there. And the, he came out two plays. Jay, Jay Schrader came in, took a snap, got sacked, and then threw a ball over the middle that was dropped by Kelvin Bryant on like third and twenty eight. And, you know, we didn't know whether or not Doug Williams would be able to come back in. But when he did come back in, it was the start of the second quarter. It was 10 nothing Redskins. The Redskins had done nothing. Doug at that point was like 4 for 10 for like 30 yards throwing the ball. And then this play from 1st and 10 early in the second quarter from their own 20 started the greatest quarter by any team in NFL history. So the Broncos show the whole playbook in the first quarter. Lead 10-0. And Washington now at the 20-yard line. Their first possession of the second period. And that started, that was Al Michaels on the call. Uh, It was actually, I think, no, it wasn't ABC's first Super Bowl. I was going to say it was their first Super Bowl. I think they actually did the 49er Dolphins Super Bowl uh, after the 84 season, the January 85 Super Bowl. But anyway, it was Al Michaels, it was Frank Gifford, it was Dan Deerdorf on the call, the Monday night crew back then, the ABC Monday night crew, and the Redskins with that 80-yard touchdown pass from Doug Williams to uh, to Ricky Sanders started what would become the 35-point second quarter, 35 points on eight 
15 offensive snaps in five consecutive drives. It was a show like none other. Um, They rolled up 360 yards in the quarter uh, in that particular game. And they went on to blow Denver out 42-10. to The numbers in that final game were amazing. Um, the Redskins totaled 602 yards of total offense in that Super Bowl against Denver. And you have to understand, it. Um, all of it basically came in three quarters. 602 yards, essentially, uh, you know, 95% of it in three quarters quarters. Um, They had 280 yards rushing. Timmy Smith still the Super Bowl uh, record holder with 204 yards on 22 carries. All right, 22 carries, 204 yards. Doug Williams was 18 of 29 for 340 and four touchdown passes, all of them in the second quarter uh, of that game. Uh, Doug had uh, uh, three. I'm sorry, Doug had one interception in that game. That came in the first quarter, four touchdowns uh, en route to the Super Bowl MVP. Um, It was an amazing display. It was a dominant performance. They did whatever they wanted to do from the second quarter on. Uh, They were the underdog in that Super Bowl. They were three, three and a half point underdogs in that Super Bowl. Uh, against the Broncos, and uh, they they came through 42-10 winners. And then I asked Aaron to cut up two post-game interviews in the locker room. The first one is with Jack Kent Cook. And for those of you that remember, you remember that Doug Williams was the first black starting quarterback in a Super Bowl. And a lot was made of that during the entire buildup um, in San Diego before – uh, Super Bowl Twenty Two. Well, Keith Jackson, the great Keith Jackson, who was the great college football announcer on ABC for decades, was the locker room interviewer, and he uh, was there to talk to Jack to Jack Kent Cook as Commissioner Pete Rozelle handed him the Lombardi Trophy. Well, here we have the leader of our new America's team, owner Jack Kent Cook, and Jack obviously was a centerline performance by the Redskins. That second quarter, incidentally, most valuable player, Doug Williams, scored more points. He, he was the main, the main driving force, of course, in the second quarter than we ever scored in one quarter in the 68-year postseason history of the National Football League. Hail the Redskins. I tell you, Pete, it's a tribute not only to a black quarterback, but to a very great quarterback. And we mustn't forget the Ricky Sanderses and all the rest of the great performances, the Timmy Smiths and so on. All I can say is that I'm terribly proud to have won two out of three Super Bowls. And the entire credit goes to Joe Gibbs, to Bobby Beathard, the assistant coaching staff, and a magnificent band of football players. Hope to be in a Super Bowl next year. Well, I know the commissioner doesn't really fall in love with that word dynasty, Jack, but you guys ain't doing bad two out of three in the 80s. I hope that there is the beginning of a dynasty here, and I have every reason to believe that perhaps we may suspect one. Thank you, Keith. Well, you have had your NBA champions. You've had your NFL champions. Uh, I mean, my gosh, how, how long can this go on? Well, it depends on how long I'm going to live, I think. And I've got another 25 years, perhaps, in me, and I hope that we have many more championships for Washington. There's one thing before we bring in Joe Gibbs that I want you to have some mention of, and that is the man who owns a ball club who had the courage to go to his checkbook and pay $475,000 for a backup quarterback. 
It was very easy to do because it was at the essence. It was the essence of wanting to win so badly. Had it been eight hundred and seventy-five thousand or a million eight hundred and seventy-five thousand, I would have said the same thing to Joe. But I would have said it quite a let a little bit reluctantly. But nevertheless, I would have said it. Go ahead, Joe, and get him. It's the greatest thing that's happened to us to have Doug here. He's coming over here. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of everybody on the club, and he's a real leader. The best leader on the club is my dear friend Joe Gibbs, our head coach. That stuff, I was we were going to cut it off a couple of times, but I just wanted to keep letting it run because there's so much there. I mean, Jack Ken Cook was a character. I mean, he was quite the character. But the the telling Keith Jacks, first of all, the conversation about a dynasty. Okay, the Redskins had been to three Super Bowls at that point in well, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 86 years. Three Super Bowls in six years they had been to um, and had won two of them. They were, along with the 49ers, the dominant teams of that era. And then the discussion about, you know, I don't know. I'd love to be a part of a dynasty, but it depends on how long I'm going to live. Hopefully I'll live for another 25 years. I think as Redskin fans, we can all agree we wished he had lived for at least another 25 years. That means he would have passed away six years ago, and we would have had more winning, uh, I'm sure of it. Um, and then $475,000 for a backup. I, 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 I would have been uh, a little bit reluctant to do a million. Yeah, uh, the, what is the, what's the rookie... Um, minimum now in the NFL. It's more than that, right? I, I think it's like 600 or yeah, I, I think it, I think yeah, 600, I think it's 600 about 600 there. Too. Uh no, actually the the uh the rookie minimum is 480,000 for year 1, 555 year 2, up to 705,000 in year 4. Um anyway, uh that was that was good stuff um, from Jack Ken Cook. Now, um, what happens is you hear Jack Co- Jack Ken Cook. He yells for Joe. He's like, "Joe, come on over here, good boy." Keith Jackson begins his interview with Joe Gibbs. I feel very humble right now from a Redskins standpoint. I feel very humble, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be a part of this. I thank God I have a chance to work in an organization like this, have an owner like this, and. All those things that support me, the coaching staff and our fans, and it really was a team effort for us, so I appreciate it very much. Somebody had to put all the nuts and bolts and pieces together, and I just have to say nobody's done it better in the 80 than you have. Well, I think it's a tribute to our organization from top to bottom. It starts the big boss, and Bobby Beathard gets the players, and John Cook, and everybody in our organization, Mr. Cook, feels the same way. It's the fans and our coaching staff that Mr. Cook got from me. And uh, I'm probably the most dependent guy out of all of them. And I just think, uh, very thankful. Thank God, like I said, that I have a chance to be a part of this. And we're thrilled. Everybody in the Redskins organization, I'm the most thrilled for everybody that got to enjoy it. And Mr. Cook is too. All of our fans and everybody that came out here. That's a great joke. All right, so that was Gibbs with Keith Jackson afterwards. You know, going down, everybody in the organization, and thanking the fans multiple times, which is what Joe always did. Long time ago, 31 years ago, Today, the Redskins beat the Broncos 42-10 to for their second Super Bowl win in six years, um, their third Super Bowl trip in six years, and they had another one that would come four years later uh, after that. Uh, what a run uh, that was. And, you know, yesterday we missed the anniversary of the Super Bowl seventeen win. Um, I just I, I blanked on that. The Rigo uh, win um, in Super Bowl 17 in Pasadena. Uh, that, there was another anniversary one year ago. For trading Alex Smith. Today's the... the yesterday uh, was, right. yeah. 
was it yesterday? I think it was today. The, I, I, I thought it was, it was the 31st. It was, I think it was the night of the 30th. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, we missed the Rigo Super Bowl, but that that's the all-timer. That's the all-time play in organization history. Uh, you know what? We'll, we'll send you out on this uh, on this Thursday afternoon with the Super Bowl 17 run as called by NBC Sports. Everybody's heard the Herzog call forever um, with Sonny and Sam. This was the Dick Enberg, Merlin Olsen call of the Rigo touchdown in Super Bowl 17, which was, all right, now 36 years ago yesterday. Uh, back tomorrow, we'll do the whole Super Bowl preview thing. Cooley will be on the show. Have a great day. Like a couple of expectant fathers, Shula pacing the sidelines. Gibbs, irritated. There's Bill Ernstbarger. Of course, he's made his defensive call. Let's see who'll win this battle of strategy. Riggins. He's going to go all the way. Unless Blackwood can catch him, and he can't. 